Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. had a haircut this week so I think it might be a kind of Samson and Delilah situation where he's taken you know the haircuts removed all his reason well the reaction Monsieur Barnier is violence on the streets of Northern Ireland again I think if you do not get a solution to this devolution in Northern Ireland is over and of course you didn't need to have any ice in your gin and tonic where I am because it was actually falling out of the sky And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Non-essential shops have reopened and the UK this week reached herd immunity, according to COVID boffins at University College London. The NHS has now offered vaccinations to everyone in the top nine priority groups ahead of Target. Our willingness to take the vaccines is higher than the government hoped when laying out its roadmap back in mid-February. And the jab is both preventing and stopping transmission of the virus better than expected. Yet far from opening up earlier, there are growing fears lockdown could extend beyond the 21st of June. Boris Johnson now says it's anti-Covid restrictions rather than our world-beating vaccination programme that explains the 95% plus fall in both UK Covid cases and deaths. The reduction in these numbers has not been achieved by the vaccination programme, argued the Prime Minister this week. But why say that, Alison? Just as we're trying to convince younger adults to take the vaccine, why is our Prime Minister now deliberately undermining the reputation of his own government's vaccination programme? <laughs> Do you want an honest answer? I mean... <laughs> Go on. Can I just say that if you can smell burning... This is a family show, remember? I know. If you can smell burning, that's the inbox with the Planet Normal listeners emailing in this morning their reaction to Boris's nonsensical statement. I mean, God help us, Halligan. I mean, the messaging from this government on COVID at the moment, it's like a supermarket trolley, isn't it, where one of the wheels has stopped working. <laughs> Absolutely careering around. So last week it was, you know, we're all having vaccine passports. And this week, as you as you summed up brilliantly in your introduction, I mean, this week it's, oh, no, not, it's not the vaccines that have been achieving anything. It's all, It's the lockdown. I mean, what are we supposed to think? What is he doing? I mean, you know, has he been kidnapped by aliens? Even Chris Whitty, who, as we know, is, you know, Mr. Doom par excellence. Oddly reassuring. Reassuringly odd. Reassuringly odd. He said recently, look at the way the numbers and the hospitalizations and the deaths have declined amongst the older age group. And why have they declined? Because of the vaccinations, Liam, because of our astonishing, world-class, miraculous vaccination programme. And, you know, as you also said, all top nine groups have been jabbed ahead of schedule. Prime Minister should be trumpeting this from the rooftops. Public Health England said a few days ago that the vaccine had saved 10,400 lives. Matt Hancock, who last time I looked was the Secretary of State for Health, he's saying that the vaccines are what have brought about all this marvellous drop in the numbers. And now we have Boris coming out and saying exactly the opposite. I mean, what's going on? Is he preparing us for lockdown four? Does he think that we've been so successful that we are probably now, as you said, at herd immunity? Is it warning the population, don't get too cocky? You know, we know that COVID's almost gone in vast ways of the country, but don't start enjoying yourself. And we actually saw, Liam, I don't know if you saw pictures of you know, people out in Soho sitting outside and under awnings in pubs and the headlines were saying, Hogarthian scenes of revelry. And you actually thought, 
They're having a bloody drink, you know, outside. That young man has a lemon in his gin and tonic, my God. It was literally. And, of course, you didn't need to have any ice in your gin and tonic where I am because it was actually falling out of the sky. So, you know, I mean, have we now internalised this judgmentalism, this moralising that people are having, you know, actually so excited, God help us, to go out and see some friends or see your family. Absolutely awful. But I have no words for how cross I am with Boris Johnson to, to make that speech. And uh, Professor Tim Spector, very, very good, amazing guy at King's College London, said today that it was a political message. He said he described what Boris said as not very scientific. I mean, you can say that again. What the hell is he playing at? It's worth just giving listeners the the quotes. The reduction in these numbers has not been achieved by the vaccination programme, said the Prime Minister. People don't, I think, appreciate that it's the lockdown that's been overwhelmingly important in delivering this improvement in the pandemic and in the figures that we are seeing. Now, if there is some clever, clever political messaging going on here, Mm -hmm. some kind of, you know, nudge unit response here. It's lost on me, mate. I don't know where this is coming from. All this is doing, it seems to me, is discouraging the people that we still need to vaccinate from getting the vaccine and making a nonsense of a common sense appraisal of what's happening on the European continent now, where cases are going up and in some unfortunate cases, deaths are going up as well. And their lack of vaccination relative to us compared to deaths and cases here. If that isn't the vaccine, then why is that happening? That huge now disconnect between the UK and the European mainland in terms of cases, deaths, unfortunately, and hospitalizations. And I think it's worth saying here, we mentioned the fantastic Sarah Napton last week, our colleague at the Telegraph, the science editor, who's been extremely sure-footed and where Planet Normal has sort of seethed and wheezed, she's been, a, 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 I think, a real kind of pillar of, of very even-tempered and even-handed analysis. And last week, Sarah wrote that suggestions of full release from lockdown in June could trigger a new wave of hospital admissions every bit as bad as the January peak. She said that was based on, quotes unduly pessimistic modelling, with much of the data needlessly negative and often out of date. Now Sarah is saying on the front of the Telegraph, she's reporting uh, official data, which shows, Alison, that almost a quarter of all registered COVID deaths are people who did not die from the disease. And these are official figures interpreted by the Telegraph science editor. Mm. And of course, we'll put the link to that Sarah Napton article in the show notes to this episode. And I really believe that when this public inquiry comes, this distinction of with and from and how the statistics are measured and presented will be front and centre of that inquiry. And I do wonder what Johnson is playing at, because you just made the connection between why say vaccine passports are so important if vaccines aren't that important, because the government does now face defeat on its vaccine passport proposals. We've seen that more than 70 MPs, including over 40 Tories, have signed an open letter to the Prime Minister rejecting the use of so-called vaccine certificates. The government's majority is only 80, of course. So if Keir Starmer's Labour Party decides it doesn't want these vaccine passports, the government will be defeated. No ifs or buts. Going back to what Sarah Napton wrote, you know, that we're, we're being told, I mean, the deaths are plummeting anyway. Sarah points out that we're seeing, say, Uh, 60 deaths a day uh, reported on the news. But actually, in some weeks and some days, that is now down into single figures. And out of a population of whatever we are, 66 million, if you're down to nine deaths a day from COVID-19, when we know, Liam, that 450 people at least die every single day of cancer, and tragically, as we've been highlighting on Planet Normal, that figure for cancers is going up as the figure for COVID deaths is disappearing. And Planet Normal listeners will remember that a few weeks ago, we had the excellent Dr. John Lee of the Heart Group on here. John has been a consultant pathologist for well over 30 years. And he said he had never come across anything like it, the recording of these deaths as COVID. And he was extremely concerned. And as the Telegraph has now said in its splash, that these figures are 
absolutely dubious. And I'm starting to wonder, Liam, what data can we actually trust? And, and, and you highlighted that this statement from the Prime Minister will put off more people coming forward for a vaccine when he claims that it's really lockdown that's been doing the bulk of the work. But my concern is there are lots of people, particularly elderly people in our parents' generation, yeah. who are still very frightened. And people like me were doing a lot to encourage people to say, no, it's really safe now. You're, you know, you're very, very safe to come out and about. So what are they going to see seeing their prime minister? I know your mum's very frightened, isn't she, Alison? Well, she's... She... My dad's very frightened, by the way. Same thing. Yeah, lots of people are even thinking a lot of them now will have had their second vaccination. They might just be starting to get their confidence back and they turn on the TV. And of course, uh, I would say that that generation is, is very trusting of officialdom. So if they hear Boris telling them, actually, it's lockdown that's brought about this, not the vaccines of which you've just had too. So I'm really, you know, feel really, really annoyed with him about that. I think it's an insult to shopping trolleys to say this <laughs> messaging is like a shopping trolley. Yes, Liam, this is a good moment just for a little bit of George. George is our NHS England insider. We've been reporting George's data for quite a long time on Planet Normal. George is a senior source within NHS England, as Alison says. We don't disclose his or her identity to save their job. We know who George is. We're confident of the authenticity of the statistics, but we can't, by definition, independently verify them because George gives them to us before they're published, if indeed they're published at all. Absolutely. And George has got some fantastic news for us this week. We went under the 2,000 COVID inpatients mark this week. Hooray. Wow. They said not a single hospital has more than 100 COVID patients and most have far less only a handful of big inner city hospitals have more than 50 COVID patients. Liam, across England, there are 123 NHS trusts, and that encompasses 173 hospital sites. And each of those has got around 600 beds. The headline number of COVID inpatients means that there are roughly 12 patients per hospital at the moment, which is less than the size of the average ward. There are approximately 350 COVID patients still in critical care, and that's about two per hospital. George says admissions are still running at about 60 a day. They've been at that level for about two weeks. Although when you spread it across all the hospital sites, it equates to just one admission for every three hospitals. 100 COVID patients are being diagnosed in hospital. This is, you know, this is Velma's absolute obsession. Liam, I apologise for that. <laughs> After admissions, 100 patients are being diagnosed and we still got around 13% are hospital-acquired infections. And uh, it's Velma's prediction, as you know, that that's going to be one of the big, dark, ugly things in yeah. the inquiry how many people, not just not just as we've seen from Sarah Napton, not, not just how many COVID deaths have been misassigned and misappropriated, but how many of the infections and deaths were caused, were actually caught in hospital. And George concludes, we are pretty much exactly where we were at the end of the first lockdown in early July 2020 in terms of most indicators Daily positive tests is the only measure that is higher than it was back then. But we are testing around seven times more people per day than we were then. So basically, Liam, if you can tell me how the Prime Minister, given what George has just told us, how the Prime Minister can have got to this, you know, sort of apocalyptic, head-shaking warning. I mean, I just don't know. You know, he had a haircut this week, so I think it might be a kind of Samson and Delilah situation where he's taken, you know, the haircuts, removed all his reason. His brains are on the on the cutting room floor, if you like. <laughs> I'm just looking at the graph here, as I often do, the hmm. official coronavirus data.gov.uk portal. And as George says, we're now back where we were at the end of the last peak in the middle of last summer with hospital admissions. And all the pubs and restaurants were open, weren't they? Do you remember? That's right. But seasonal factors are also very, very important. If you go back to this time in April last year, we were admitting almost 2,500 people into hospital every day with COVID. And now, as you say... 
it's between one and 200 most days, even though it's the same time of the year. So we've got hospital admissions related to COVID that are equivalent to the middle of last summer rather than the middle of last, you know, early spring when it's still really cold and viral infections, uh, people are more vulnerable to them. So those, again, it's something that Sarah Napton's brought out in her writing, but these seasonal factors are often ignored, aren't they, in the sort of political commentary and debate in the House of Commons when it comes to COVID. But let's just leave COVID there for a minute, Copilot. Obviously, we'll come back to it because I wanted to highlight a couple of other things that you've been writing about in your column. Mm-hmm. We'll come to the death of His Royal Highness Prince Philip. You really captured the mood for The Telegraph on that last Friday and Saturday's paper uh, after Prince Philip's unfortunate death. But tell me about Hull University. Oh, <laughs> Well, listeners may have read this. Every day feels like April Fool's Day now, doesn't it? But um, yeah, Hull, Hull University has announced it's got a plan to ensure equity of opportunity by treating working class and ethnic minority students as if they're too thick to learn to spell, punctuate or use correct grammar, Liam. And professors and lecturers at Hull have been advised against insisting on good written English in all circumstances, because apparently only posh white males can be expected to do such difficult things. You know, this hits a nerve for me. I imagine it it does for you as well, because we we don't come from the kind of background where there were sort of book-lined rooms at home and we somehow managed to learn to read and write and spell quite well despite those disadvantages. And all I see when I see something which presumably is terribly well-intentioned by by probably a lot of uh, middle-class academics who don't really have any comprehension about what it's like to come from a different kind of home, but You can imagine how this fairness and equity initiative is going to play out, Liam, when these graduates of Hull University um, apply for their first job with a company which believes in that old white supremacist stuff that it's useful to be able to spell clients' names and even write a comprehensible letter. So so it looks like it's progressive, but I would actually say it's utterly regressive. And it taps in for me this week as well. You'll, You'll see that Shirley Williams died this week, age 90, I think she was. She was a a formidable woman, Labour politician. Absolutely, one of the gang of four who left the Labour Party and formed the SDP. Absolutely did an invaluable service, leaving a, you know, a sort of an extremely radical out of control Labour Party and doing a great, a great service by forming the SDP. She was also actually the daughter of Vera Britton, who wrote some of the greatest accounts of being a woman in the First World War, testament of youth and so on. But Shirley Williams did this one grave disservice to poorer children. In my mind, the greatest act of vandalism ever committed against children from my background. And she was an enthusiastic abolisher of the grammar schools. And I reminded myself, Liam, this week, reading Shirley Williams's obituary, that she herself attended St. Paul's Girls' School, one of the most academically successful schools in the country. And just to add salt into the wound, she sent her own daughter to Godolphin and Latimer, another highly selective private school. And I think this does tap into the Hull University story because my parents' generation, they were able to apply to and earn if they were lucky to get into grammar schools. And what grammar schools gave them, Liam, was it gave them the kind of education that only money could buy elsewhere. And they were able to talk to spell and to use grammar. In fact, I would say that our parents' generation and grandparents' generation who went to grammar were much better at grammar and spelling than my generation, which was the comprehensive generation. But it's a real red rag to a bull to your co-pilot, as you can probably hear. I think the whole university story is deeply worrying because it just hammers the reputation of the University of Hull, Mm. which is a damn good university. It's in the top five northern universities it's in you know often in the top 50 across the uk as a whole which has more world-ranked universities per head than pretty much any country in the world and to to label people who've got a degree from hull many of whom go on to do great things as coming from an organization that doesn't put real credence by good grammar and spelling yes is a complete disservice to all members of the university past, present and future. And it strikes me when it comes to Shirley Williams, it was an incredible thing that she did launching the SDP with 
Roy Jenkins, David Owen, of course, a, a really massive moment in British political history. Without the SDP, the Labour Party could have stayed in the extreme wilderness. You wouldn't have got new Labour coming through. You probably wouldn't have got John Smith winning in the early 90s, Blair winning in the mid-90s after John Smith's unfortunate death. So I am sad that she's passed and she was always very nice to me personally. And I'm sure you had, as a fellow journalist, many interesting uh, liaisons with her. But I do think she was wrong on grammar schools because her great political hero, Tony Crossland, the education secretary, was wrong on grammar schools. And it strikes me that also in my family's history, grammar schools have been important. My mum was one of 10. I think pretty much she was the youngest. Mm. Pretty much all her brothers and sisters got into grammar school but only the last two actually went to grammar school because the others couldn't afford to go in the sense that they had to leave school at 14 to earn money for the family. So if you think about how important grammar schools have been on social mobility, think of that Tory cabinet that we saw in the 80s. You had Margaret Thatcher, a grammar school girl. Yeah, you had Michael absolutely. Howard, a grammar school boy from Wales. You know, immigrant family. You had Ken Clark, a grammar school boy. And these guys and girls were running rings around the Etonians and the people from the yeah. big public schools in terms of political acumen, guile, and feel for what ordinary people are thinking. And yes, of course, there was a problem if you went to a grammar school that was great. Many people who didn't go to grammar school felt it was a cruel system because the 11 plus segregated them. So I think the problem wasn't the grammar schools. It was the alternative, the secondary modern schools. If we can get technical and apprenticeship training right, then I do think we could go back to more academically selective education. But before we go to our Planet Normal guest, we must, of course, mention Prince Philip, Alison, yeah. because you wrote very eloquently on the front of the Telegraph on the Saturday morning, the day after Prince Philip died Friday the 9th of April about how the Duke of Edinburgh had acted as the Queen's strength and stay. You know, it's been extraordinary this week. I think something since he died. I mean, it's taught us a lesson, I think, Liam, because the Duke of Edinburgh described himself as a cantankerous old sod rather brilliantly. And there was this caricature, wasn't there? And People tend to harden into caricature as they get older. Of course, he was very old. He was just, a, I think, 62 days shy of the Queen sending her own husband a telegram. So that's, you know, that would have been... You know that would have made them laugh because they yeah. never stopped laughing as a couple. And her grammar wasn't bad. <laughs> no, no, her grammar wasn't bad. But I think that various things occurred. A, a lot of younger people have found out what an extraordinary life he had. I mean... He was born into the Greek royal family, although the family was really mainly Danish and German, and they had to flee Corfu when he was just one years old, and he was taken away in a sort of orange crate. And the parents became quite impecunious, having to sponge off relatives across Europe and so on. And and then he did very distinguished service in, in the war as an, a young naval officer, young lieutenant. He was 19 years old, Liam, when he was yeah, turning the spotlight in the uh, Battle of Crete onto enemy ships. And lots of people from that time remembered how ingenious he was. They were under attack, his ship and Philip came up with some great ruse of pushing out a raft with lots of, sort of smoke bombs on it to distract the enemy fire onto that. And they just said, if you ever wanted sort of something clever to get you out of a difficult situation, Philip was the guy to do it. So I think that people have seen this, you know, actually very creative, ingenious moderniser. He was probably the cleverest royal. I mean, that may not be a proud boast, but I think he certainly, certainly was. And of course, the great service he did the country. For all our lives, Liam, we've been able to take for granted, haven't we, that mm. the monarchy, whether you're, a, whether you're an ardent monarchist with a little flag to wave or whether you're just kind of quietly happy that it burbles away in the background. Prince Philip made this, uh, you know, astonishing marriage with the Queen. I think it was a love match, certainly for her. I think it was a great love match. Very unusual for a constitution. It's rare a princess gets to marry for love, right, as you pointed out. Very rare. And did you see there were some photos of him when he was young? Oh, my God. He was like, he was absolute kind of prince out of hands, Christian Steady, Anderson. Steady, weak at a the knees. Absolutely. Well, really, a lot. I think a lot of women said he was just so handsome. And, and there was this young woman. She was in her late 20s when she became queen. And this incredibly lonely job. You could say it's the loneliest job in the world, Liam. And, you know, she's anointed by God. It's very, very strange, particularly for an alpha male like that 
to marry a woman and in that generation to be walking a few paces behind your wife, he had to abandon what would have been an incredibly successful naval career. But, you know, he swore that oath to her at the coronation, I, Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, do become your liege man of life and limb and of earthly worship and faith and truth I will bear unto you to live and die against all manner of folk. So help me God. And God bless him. He he did that. And he made her less lonely. And also, I think that because he was well aware of the fragility of monarchy, that it had to come on popular approval. It could no longer coast along as it had done. So I think that this impatient dynamo of a man, he passed out, Liam, best all-round cadet at Dartmouth Royal Navy College. So he was destined to be a leader of men. But he followed a woman because that was his duty very looked down upon when he entered the royal family, the very xenophobic establishment. You know, they, someone described the moustache types bristling away about this ghastly foreign fellow who'd come in. And of course, he became the quintessential British man, didn't he? If you look to him, he sums up the sort of fantastic British values of a certain generation. And uh, let me finish by saying that It's going to be his funeral on Saturday, a sadly small affair in St. George's Chapel, only 30 members of the royal family. But Prince Philip had designed his own hearse, which sounds like it's kind of part Land Rover, part battle bus. Um, And I think that that's going to be that that will be a lovely uh, reminder to us all of what we've lost, this irreverent, uh, ingenious, uh, clever Very, very, very special man. Hi, listeners. It's Bryony Gordon here, popping into this podcast to tell you all about another Telegraph series called Bryony Gordon's Mad World. It's a podcast in which I chat to household names and unsung heroes about their mental health, from Stacey Solomon to therapists and doctors on the front line. We talk about looking after ourselves as we heave ourselves out of lockdown and remind you that it's totally normal to feel weird. Search Mad World wherever you usually download your podcasts. Last week, we welcomed Tony Sewell onto Planet Normal, the chair of the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, his first interview since the publication of his controversial report on UK race relations commissioned by Downing Street. The interview sparked headlines, and you can listen for free, along with contributions from other previous stowaways, including former Supreme Court Judge Jonathan Sumption, the epidemiologist Sinetra Gupta, intelligence supremo Sir Richard Dearlove, and cooking icon Prue Leith on our Planet Normal archive. This week's guest addresses the recent outbreak of violence in Northern Ireland, the worst since the Good Friday Agreement was signed back in 1998. Ray Bassett is a proud Dubliner who spent his career at the pinnacle of the Irish civil service. He's widely recognised as one of the leading architects of the Good Friday Agreement, having helped to draft the historic treaty and working closely throughout the negotiations with then-Irish Prime Minister, or Taoiseach, Bertie Ahern. Now retired, Bassett has consistently warned that Brexit endangers the Good Friday Agreement, given disputes over the Irish land border between the North and the Republic and the sea border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Yet Ray Bassett insists that since the Brexit referendum in June 2016, it's been the EU, and particularly the Irish government under Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, that's acted unreasonably and taken risks with the precious Good Friday Agreement. I think they essentially conspired with both the Remainers in London and uh, people in Brussels to try and thwart that decision of the UK electorate. It was a very high risk strategy because if it didn't work, it was going to, you know, endanger the Good Friday Agreement and the cooperation between Dublin and London. And it was, in my own view, it was it was also wrong for a country like Ireland to try and interfere so heavily in, in the UK. If the UK uh, population decided to leave the EU, We should have followed what we had promised in the Good Friday Agreement of being a good neighbour and partner with the United Kingdom. And we should have assisted the United Kingdom get a reasonably good deal out of the EU because it was not only because we had signed up to that, but because it was in our interests. It struck me, Ray, 
after June 2016, there were genuine attempts between Dublin and London to make this these border issues work, to have um, behind-the-border checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, to use authorised economic operator schemes so there wouldn't be any infrastructure on the Irish land border, which, of course, could be incendiary to certain sectarian interests. And under the then Taoiseach Ender Kenny, there was lots of cooperation between the various civil services on either side who worked very closely together all the time anyway. But then Theresa May lost a majority in May 2017. She became dependent, didn't she, on the Ulster Unionists and Brussels saw a chance to use Ireland as leverage. And from then on, under Leo Varadkar, the atmosphere in Dublin changed and it was all about taking a maximalist ultra legalistic approach to the irish border and helping brussels to use these ancient enmities and a fragile precious peace as leverage do you think that's a fair reading of what happened yeah there's there's very strong elements of that there i mean ember kenny would not be an ideologue or anything like that and his natural instinct would be to try and make things easier now, Leo Varadkar, on the other hand, has openly said when he was a younger man that he is a European federalist. So he's much more committed to the European ideal. The other point is I wouldn't totally exonerate the Irish civil service, just like the British civil service, but they become very, very pro-European. They they love these trips to Brussels. All my, my, my mon cher colleague and, 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 and you know, all this uh, sort of camaraderie. So you find within the civil service, particularly prime minister's office and, and the foreign minister's office, that they tend to go in and out of European institutions. So the sort of core element in the public service is often very, very pro-European, even more pro-European than the, the general population. But it is true that Leo Varadkar took a, a, a and Simon Coveney, who's another very, very strong Europhile, they took the decision to uh, realign Ireland much more strongly with, with Brussels. And as you know yourself, and you mentioned it in Clean Brexit, that there were discussions underway with, uh, between the, the revenue um, people in both Ireland and the UK who felt that they could work out some kind of modus um, vivendi uh, that would that would allow uh, checks to be very uh, to be of a minimal variety. That changed. You were right. That changed after the change in, in leadership in Dublin. Now there has been a, a change since that. Michal Martin would probably be pro-European. Who's the new Taoiseach, of course? Yeah, he would not be anything like as much of a Europhile as Leo Varadkar. And in fact, he's made some quite interesting statements which weren't really taken up in the UK. He said that he was uncomfortable at a European Council meeting. And he also took part with Mark Rutte stopping the, the ban on vaccinations uh, dosages. So uh, Michal Martin is working in coalition with Leo Varadkar. But I notice he's he's dialed down the rhetoric. He's made clearly that he is uh, for a, a, a more constructive relationship with London. But of course, Ireland has found itself in a bit of a cold house in the European Union since the UK left their value to uh, to Brussels has decreased hugely. So in recent times on, on the allocation of fish or, you know, the COVID funds and things like that, Ireland got a very poor deal. Whereas, you know, while the backstop and the rows are going over the border, <coughs> Ireland was being very heavily courted by Brussels. At the moment, we're feeling a bit of the draft of being away from the Euro European Union. And of course, the worst example of that was when the European Commission invoked Article 16 in, in terms of, of creating a, a vaccine border in, in Ireland, which showed that our use had gone and we were way off the radar. We are now seeing, Ray, of course, some of the worst violence, if not the worst violence in Northern Ireland since that historic Good Friday Agreement 23 years ago. To what extent do you think that's due to the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, the part of the Brexit deal designed to protect the peace process, to avoid the need for checks on the land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic? And to what extent do you think it's the same old paramilitary groups uh, exercising some kind of opportunism? The causation of the of the rioting in Belfast is probably uh, 
got several different um, sources, but I would I would say the protocol has been the trigger. I, there has been a general unhappiness and unease within the sort of loyalist unionist community or the extreme unionist areas about how the, things are drifting. You know, there the, the complaints about the police. There's complaints about. Uh, the protocol, there's complaints about the whole world is against them. They don't have a huge amount of confidence in the prime minister in London because of, obviously, he said things that didn't didn't actually uh, occur later. I think it is, it, there is genuine anger inside the, the loyalist community. We're in a, a kind of a period of calm now till Saturday because they've essentially called off the protests uh, until the uh, um, um, Prince Philip is um, buried but I wouldn't be surprised if this trouble breaks out again uh, on, um, after the weekend. And um, not it's not inevitable, but I think it's likely that this is going to get worse. And of course, the summer marching season will soon be upon us. Would you prefer, Ray, that the border, such as it is, would build on the existing invisible land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic using technical solutions. After all, the amount of trade between Northern Ireland and the Republic is tiny compared to the amount of trade between Northern Ireland and, if I may describe it as the UK mainland, Great Britain. Surely it was a mistake to put the border in the Irish Sea in the first place. For all the sensitivities of the land border, there were many, many studies that showed, even studies financed by the EU, that you could use the technology to build on the invisible border, to have checks between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. There was a border in the Irish Sea before this as well. I mean, Yeah, we've had checks at Larne, for instance, for many years, haven't we? Absolutely. I, I said uh, right from the start that I thought the solution to this was much more a, a bilateral arrangement between Ireland and, and the UK, where it could sit down and, you know, minimise everything uh, as far as possible. But unfortunately, the Irish government opted out. And in fact, even very recently, I think Simon Coveney said, we don't discuss uh, the issue of the protocol with the United Kingdom government, which is ridiculous. Because if the Irish and British government sat down in the kind of spirit that Enda Kenny had and presented the the European Union with a draft agreement, it would be very difficult for... They couldn't refuse it, could they? They couldn't refuse it in the eyes of the world. The Brussels couldn't refuse it. Uh, Absolutely. And I, I think... The thing has deteriorated a bit beyond that now, where it's hard to see how the thing can be pulled back because, too, you know, the EU will make concessions on the on the on the protocol, but I don't think that's going to be enough. I think it would have been enough maybe at the very start, but the fact that you know that everybody was under the impression that there was only going to be checks on on goods that there was a danger of going into the republic, which. And we could operate a trade, a trusted trader system and all, so it would be very light. Unfortunately, the actual implementation of the protocol has been very heavy-handed. I get that impression uh, in, in, in Belfast, Larne and Warren Point. And, you know, they have destroyed in some ways the goodwill. I mean, Arlene Foster was prepared at one stage to accept the border in the IRC, but I don't think she ex- envisaged it at the level at which it is at the moment. And I think the only way you're going to stop this is for the Irish and British government and the parties in Northern Ireland to get together and hammer out a deal and hand it to Brussels. It's people in Brussels have been telling me that even the people who are in negotiations with, with, with Lord Frost say they have difficulty when they come back to Brussels with the ideologues who sort of say, well, this, the single market, you know, as if, you know, a group, some... English sausages going to Belfast is going to, uh, you know, undermine the single market. I mean, it, it, even in Brussels, there are people who who say they have difficulty getting even minor concessions through. But I think if the two governments came and presented a document which they claimed and they'd work it, I think, you know, which which required a few concessions in each area, as I say, occasional even inspections of projects which came directly from the island of Ireland to the to 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 places like Zeebruggen. I'm not sure at the moment because at the at the moment the 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 political situation is very sensitive, and any move is seen as a as a concession or a gain by one side or the other. But I think we do need to take it out of the hands of of the ideologues from Brussels and get down to practical application. How do we do this with the minimum of force so the average person doesn't even notice its existence? And don't rule out anything 
in terms of uh, ways of doing this. Let's let's throw all the theology out and let's work out a practical solution. David Trimble, of course, is increasingly outspoken, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, the former leader of the Ulster Unionists, a key, key figure uh, in the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, he's saying that the European Union insists the Good Friday Agreement is sacrosanct, uh, but their promises are ringing hollow. He feels personally betrayed, of course, because the Good Friday Agreement guarantees that any constitutional change in Northern Ireland must be preceded by a referendum. How seriously do you think the British government now should take David Trimble's warnings? Oh, I think you should take them very seriously. I think the situation in, in Northern Ireland is serious and it has a potential of, of destabilising. I think if you do not get a solution to this, devolution in Northern Ireland is over. Because I, I, I honestly think that unless Arlene Foster can, can actually show something uh, in, in terms of change, I don't think it would be politically possible for her to stay in, in, in government. But I think David Trimble is right. I think it's a very serious question. My own belief is that nobody has really stuck to the Good Friday Agreement. I hear people regularly quoting parts of it that aren't there and then driving horse and coach through major articles in it. And yet at the same time, declaring their undying love for the Good Friday Agreement. And most of them have drifted well, well beyond it. And also you've got to remember that the Good Friday Agreement has been on life support system for the last while. I mean, the the Irish-British part of it, the Good Friday Agreement is not just about Belfast. It's also about relations between Ireland and Britain. The whole institutional structure between Ireland and Britain, where we consult each other, where we'd have regular meetings, has essentially died. Also, there's very little activity on the uh, on the north-south cooperation. And in Belfast, their structures are, are, are basically wobbling. So, you know, people are talking about preserving the Good Friday Agreement, but the Good Friday Agreement has essentially been allowed to wither uh, because people haven't implemented it all in either the spirit or the letter to which it was it was it was written. I mean, uh, it, it, it's galling to listen to people who have no knowledge of it to sort of say, this is my Bible, you know. Final question, Ray. Do you think the Northern Ireland Protocol can survive or should it be thrown away and Britain and Ireland do a deal between themselves? I, I, my, my personal view is that I don't think the Northern Ireland Protocols can survive and devolution can survive. I, th- I honestly think the only way out of it is a, a bilateral deal between Ireland and Britain, which the Irish government have at the moment ruled out. I just do not think that... Uh, tinkering with the with with the protocol at this stage is going to do the trick. Now I hope I'm wrong, but I my own view is from talking to people in the in the unionist and the loyalist community is that there is such a disillusionment uh, because they feel that their rights as members of the United Kingdom has been violated. Now we as an Irish government promised that we would treat both communities in Northern Ireland with equal respect and parity of esteem, and we will be as cognizant of the rights and sort of sensitivities of both communities. That's one area where we glaringly have let the people have that down. And of course, the UK government, by its alliance with the DUP, clearly broke that as well. So when two governments tell me that they are great supporters of the, of the Good Friday Agreement, I'm afraid I have to um, enter a caveat on that. Ray Bassett, thanks a lot for visiting Planet Normal. So that's Ray Bassett, his book, Ireland and the EU Post-Brexit, is out now. Alison, a little bit of explanation. I first met Ray Bassett back in the late 90s when I was covering the Good Friday Agreement as a political correspondent for the Financial Times. He is, if you're au fait with Irish accents and Dublin accents, he is a Northsider. He's from the poorer part of Dublin. He's not from the sort of background that usually leads you to the very, very pinnacle of the civil service. And Ray's been pilloried in recent years in the Irish press, on Irish television, by former colleagues in the civil service for speaking out in the way he has. And yet he is brilliantly connected, not just in London as an Irishman, but also in Northern Ireland as somebody who so proudly hails from the Republic. He has this incredible ability it's not an exaggeration to move between different worlds. And that's why he is such a good negotiator. And that's why he was so instrumental in securing that Good Friday Agreement, turning the telescope round and seeing complex, fraught situations from other people's points of view. And the fact that someone like Ray Bassett is saying that now 
the Northern Ireland Protocol is being implemented by the EU in such a heavy-handed manner with astonishing numbers of checks limiting the flow of goods between the UK mainland and Northern Ireland, stoking up trouble. It's not just the protocol that's caused this trouble. It's also a funeral, a Sinn Féin funeral that many unionists think the police were too soft in terms of overseeing COVID rules were being breaking, and also outright opportunism by criminal gangs running still drug and extortion rackets, ordering people to riot, if you like. But when someone like Ray is well-connected and with the antenna that he has for this agreement is saying that the protocol can't survive, that's quite a big moment. I absolutely loved listening to him, Liam. I'm going to put my hand up here to my Irish co-pilot or Anglo-Irish co-pilot and just say that I tend to glaze over, you know, Irish backstop. I'm watching the scenes of violence on the news. I don't really understand it. I think probably like lots of mainland Brits, I tend to slightly turn away and, you know, don't pay enough attention. And I learned so much then listening to you talking to Ray. And something that strikes me, Liam, is that we hear it blaming it on Brexit, don't we? Oh, this is caused by the Brexit vote. In fact, as Ray Bassett explained, Brussels has been using Ireland as leverage against the UK. And what's happened, of course, is Ireland really was a pawn in the game. And as Ray Bassett said, their use has gone now. You know, the minute that Brussels invoked Article 16, it gave a real shock to Ireland because I think probably made them realise that they were of no significance in this greater game because the greater game, as Michel Barnier said very shockingly, do you remember he was caught admitting off camera that Northern Ireland was the price that the UK was going to have to pay for Brexit. I've got the quote here. This is what Michel Barnier said during the Brexit negotiations. For me, there is a strategic and tactical reason to use Ireland in these negotiations, said the then EU's chief negotiator, isolating Ireland and avoiding closing this point over the next two to three years. That will lead to permanent pressure on negotiations over trade and the single market but we have to be careful what the reaction will be. Well, the reaction, Monsieur Barnier, is violence on the streets of Northern Ireland again, as you knew would happen. I feel that the EU has used the fragility of the peace in Northern Ireland as a way of getting at the UK, trying to keep Britain within the EU's orbit, trying to completely stop Brexit at one point with the help and assistance of the Irish government. And that's what really offends Ray Bassett, that his own country was trying to stop a neighbour from doing what it was democratically meant to do. And of course, I've written extensively about the issues that Brexit raises for Ireland. But I think, and and Ray Bassett thinks more importantly, that uh, arrangements could have been come to where you have an invisible land border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic that's already a currency border, a tax border, a duty border, and it could easily have become a customs border too with behind-the-border checks, with authorised economic operator schemes, with derogations for smaller firms, tiny amounts of trade really compared to the big trade between Northern Ireland and the UK mainland. And I think we should really give the last word on this to David Trimble. And I say this as somebody from an Irish Catholic background, as you know, we should give the last word to David Trimble, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Mm. because he says, quotes, I feel betrayed personally by this Northern Ireland protocol. And it's why unionists in Northern Ireland are so incensed at its in position. That's because, as David Trimble says, the protocol demolishes the central premise of the Good Friday Agreement by removing the assurance that democratic consent is required to change Northern Ireland's status. Now, in introducing that protocol, the EU is to blame. But I'm afraid, Alison, the Prime Minister is also to blame because he made promises about the protocol at the dispatch box in the House of Commons Mm. that Arlene Foster, leader of the unionist community, took in good faith. And I'm afraid those promises were not entirely true. And that together with the EU's insistence and intransigence and ongoing use of Northern Ireland to try and control the UK and to thwart a complete and full Brexit for the whole of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is the heart of this problem.
Now it's time for our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, insightful, often very funny and sometimes heartbreaking messages that you send each week to Liam and me at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you. And now, of course, there's the added incentive of the chance to win a legendary Planet Normal mug. And as you know, I've always thought my Planet Normal co-pilot was a Planet Normal mug, but now it's official. So, Liam, we had a huge response this week from listeners who were very moved by Nick's email last week about his wife, Joy, who, as you know, had terrible trouble getting seen in person by a doctor and her cancer went undiagnosed, a recurrence of a previous cancer from a long time ago. And Joy has very tragically died and Nick was rightly incensed by the failure of the NHS and what made it even more remarkable Liam was that Nick as you know was the former chairman of an NHS trust himself. Now Andrew, not his real name, wrote to us, I listened to Nick's letter about his wife Joy and I felt embarrassed to be a general practitioner. The failure to see patients face to face and conduct care by telephone has been awful. I hate it. And this is what happens. We are trying to assess people on the phone with every symptom under the sun, pain, breathlessness, weight loss, depression. It won't help Nick and his dear wife, but I want someone out there to know that not all GPs are the same. I've been seeing patients face to face throughout this whole crisis. During March, April of last year, I quickly realised that there are things that are impossible to assess over the phone. My mantra from early on was not everything is COVID. So as soon as it became apparent that the tidal wave of virus wasn't coming to my locality, I started increasing the number of face-to-face consultations. I lobby my fellow practice partners about returning the surgery back to normal, but sadly they remain cautious about a waiting room full of people. This is despite over 90% of our patients over the age of 50 having been vaccinated. Why are so many so-called educated people still scared? Telephone consultations are, in my opinion, lower quality, less satisfying, more tiring and don't seem to save work. A significant proportion of those I speak to on the phone go on to need a face-to-face consultation. I recently had a couple of cases where, were it not for seeing the patient face-to-face, the patient might no longer be with us. The thought makes me shudder. It makes me so sad that even Nick, as a former NHS chairman, found the NHS failed him. I desperately want him to know that there are GPs out there who have continued with face-to-face consultations. As we know, this is all too often the best way. When I feel like the only GP arguing for an end to lockdown and the only one who seems to have read the primary literature about most of the controversial topics, e.g. hydroxychloroquine, masks, etc., it can be a lonely, tiring place. It has been incredibly frustrating with prescribing restrictions. If I'd even dared to try to prescribe hydroxychloroquine, I'd have been given a first-class ticket to the General Medical Council. Thinking about Nick's wife made me think about my own patients. My patients with COVID-19 syndrome in hospitals survived only by God's grace. Oxygen and dexamethasone seem to be the only treatments in our local hospital – Remdesivir? Nope. Not for my patients, at least. Invermectin? Nope. Monoclonal antibodies for cytokine storm prevention? Nope. Anticoagulation for hospital COVID patients with hypoxemia? Nope. We've had no communication from our secondary care colleagues about the treatment protocols. And most of the patients who I have lost to SARS-CoV-2 have been nosocomial. They got the infection in hospital, including a 14-year-old man on chemotherapy. To the GPs in the NHS who have refused and still refuse to see patients face to face, I say, shame on you. I took the Declaration of Geneva, like the Hippocratic Oath, when I graduated from medical school. And that promise I made, I meant it. I would be grateful for an alias if you were to read this email out on air. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Andrew. And on to another medic. We get so many emails don't we Alison from medical professionals from the NHS and elsewhere this is from David who is a practicing pathologist thank you planet normal a beacon of sanity through the fog of mass hysteria I work in a busy mortuary and carry out routine post-mortem examinations 
Naturally, we are more busy in winter, but for us, since March 2020, it's like winter never went away. ONS statistics show there are currently no overall excess deaths compared to, to recent years, but the proportion of deaths at home is more than usual, which explains why the mortuary is so busy. These are people dying at home who arguably could have lived had they sought or been able to access medical attention. There are also addiction deaths as people have been drinking and taking more drugs during lockdown and, of course, more suicides. I've seen a number of tragic cases where the suicide note points directly to the strain of lockdown as the reason that person chose to end their life. Lockdowns are inhumane, immensely harmful, and according to at least 40 peer-reviewed articles now, don't even reduce viral spread. At no time during my medical training was I taught that locking up healthy individuals was a reasonable and useful tool. It angers me greatly that if one even dares point out lockdown harms you, then you're accused of not caring about COVID. I care about reducing all deaths, but especially those of people with potentially many decades more life left to live. Medicine teaches us first do no harm. And on this front, medicine has failed. Very powerful email, David. Thank you. Wow, isn't that amazing to hear that from someone who, you know, is day to day dealing with the dead. This is from Tony, responding to last week's interview with Dr. Tony Sewell, which I mentioned earlier. I agree, says Tony, there's a great swathe of young people that have long been ignored, especially white working class boys. I grew up in the 70s in East London. Education was an afterthought. There was poverty. Not that would now say you can't have the latest iPhone, but where my mum would cut up the lino into shapes that resembled coins to put in the gas and electricity meter where we would constantly have holes in our shoes going to school. At secondary school, only the fittest survived. The school was made up of almost 2,000 boys, most of them feral. I struggled to learn to read and write. There were serious tensions linked to both poverty and race. It wasn't until I started playing rugby for my school and going to a gym with a friend's dad that the bullying stopped. I hated that school with a passion. Apart from a few teachers and one in particular, Mr Arthur J Limeburner, He was a very strict but fair head of year, and after I started to skip school, he asked me if I'd like to try something different by going to a technical college one day a week. That simple intervention entirely changed my life. I got an apprenticeship from the qualifications I gained, and have been very successful in my work ever since. Living in East London back then, I saw how positive discrimination meant the white working class were ignored in both education and housing. And when my two daughters attended primary school in Canning Town, they were also sidelined because children who couldn't speak English were the priority. Their education suffered as a result. I'm not racist. I grew up with many black and Asian friends who remain my mates to this day. But I hate injustice. And as another doctor, Dr. Martin Luther King once said, we should all be judged not by the colour of our skin, but the content of our character. And as Dr. Sewell's report was also correct to say, we should all be fairly treated to maximise our potential, and that includes the white working class as well. With kind regards and best wishes to all Planet Normal listeners, Tony. And here's a funny one, Liam, from Sue. Medical experts in London today were asked if it is time to ease the COVID lockdown. Allergists were in favour of scratching it, but dermatologists (laughs) advised not to make any rash moves. (laughs) Gastroenterologists had a sort of gut feeling about it, but neurologists thought the government lacked the nerve. Obstetricians felt certain everyone was labouring under a misconception. No! It goes on. While ophthalmologists considered the idea (laughs) short-sighted. Many pathologists yelled, over my dead body, while paediatricians said, oh, do grow up. Psychiatrists thought the whole idea was madness, while radiologists could see right through it. Boom, boom. (laughs) Plastic surgeons opined that this proposal wouldn't put a whole new face on the matter. (laughs) Podiatrists thought it was a step forward, but urologists were pissed off by the whole idea. Anaesthetists thought the idea was a gas, and cardiologists didn't have the heart to say no. In the end, the proctologists won out, leaving the entire decision up to the arseholes in politics. Thank you, Sue, for that. So that's it from Planet Normal on that bombshell for another week, our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. 
And I forgot to say from Elizabeth Liam, Alison for Prime Minister, Liam for Chancellor, before we are lost. Well, that's an idea. <laughs> Liam and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released between 11am and 12 noon. We'll put the link to that article in the episode description or just go to the Telegraph website homepages, www.telegraph.co.uk and look for the article labelled Planet Normal. And Alison, before we go... Your choice for email of the week? Well, they're all so good, Liam, aren't they? But I'm going to give it to Andrew, not his real name, the fantastic GP who responded with such compassion to Nick's email about his beloved wife, Joy. So if Andrew emails, not his real name, he knows who he is. If he emails planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with a postal address, he'll get a rare as rocking horse teeth Planet Normal mug. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal, and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard and Elliot Lampitt and our editor Theodora Leludis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other and until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>